those that haven't met, my name is Chris. Like Kevin said, I'm one of the pastors with Missio de Phoenix, about 30 minutes or 50 minutes from here, depending on what time of day we're driving over. And so it's good to be here with you all, good to worship with you. Uh, we gather at 9 a.m. across the valley. And so this is past my bedtime already. Um, but it's also the second time that I get to preach on this text. And so hopefully I've polished it up a little more since then. I told, I told Missio Phoenix this morning, I told some of them there that that was like first service, you know, and they were my practice round. They were the guinea pigs. So hopefully it's a little bit better tonight. Uh, but would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for just the ability to gather together as your people, your children, your sons and daughters, brothers and sisters with one another. And we're grateful for your word. And we're grateful for your spirit being present here, just as we sing. And so would your spirit open up our ears to hear your word to us. In the name of Jesus, to the glory of the Father, and the power of your spirit, we pray these things. Amen. So I was in fifth grade, and we had a field day. Do they still do field day at schools? Not so much post-COVID, right? Yeah. All right, so older people in here, you all remember field days? Yeah, sorry, guys. They're, they were great. Field days were great. It was like you teamed up. It was class against class, and you would have all these different competitions, like American Ninja Warrior style, only not nearly as cool. But I like to think that it was. Uh, but the big event at the end of the day was tug-of-war, right? And so it would be like your whole class versus the whole other class doing tug-of-war. And our class was killing it. We were crushing all the other classes. And then we had to go up against some of the older classes. So fifth graders going against sixth graders. And then we were going against the seventh graders. And we were just trying so hard to pull on that rope, doing everything we could. And I remember our teacher like screaming at us. Her face was like beet red. And she's like, just hold on, just hold on. Because she knew we weren't going to pull them and move them anywhere. But she was like, if we could just hold on, you're going to be all right. Uh, and they ended up dragging us across that line. It was pretty brutal. But it was a fun day. And I got home from school that day. It was a Friday. So when I got home, I knew my mom was picking us up for the weekend. Every other weekend, we went to mom's house. And so got home to dad's house, started packing up, getting ready to go. Mom shows up, hop in the station wagon. Dad comes out. Mom and dad start having a conversation on the lawn. And then after a while, dad goes, hey, get out of the car. Okay. Dad says something, you do it, right? So we get out of the car. Mom goes, no, get back in the car. We're going. Mom says something, you do it, right? So we got back in the car. And this went on for about five minutes, just a back and forth, having an argument over child support and deciding, you know, if you're not going to pay, then you don't get to play. You don't get the time with the kids. And they had this little tug of war going on, only this time we were the rope. The kids were caught in the middle of it powerless to the situation. Two authorities in our life, two people in power in our lives who also should be caring for us in our lives, using us to position power over another. And we were powerless. We were stuck in the middle. 
Nothing we could do. That game of tug of war was not nearly as fun for me. But I remember actually hearing the words of my teacher, just hold on. Just hold on. You can't win this one. You can't pull the rope. You're not going to overcome right now. But just hold on. And that actually became something I would say over and over to myself growing up. Just hold on. And I share that because when we get to this letter to the church in Philadelphia, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, across the other side of the globe from us, what we find is a small little community of people who are powerless with different competing authorities around them vying for power and position and control over others, and they were caught in the middle. And the words of Jesus to them is, hold on, hold on. You see, what you have in Philadelphia is it's a, it's a city in what we would now call modern-day Turkey, right? And so it's close to Greece, uh, but the Roman emperor Empire is in control at this point. So in this Greco-Roman world, what you had is bow down to Caesar and worship all these other gods. Like this is, this is one power at play here. But then you have a lot of people who grew up, these, these Greek people even, who didn't grow up being Jewish people, but they come to faith in this Jewish rabbi named Jesus. They come to believe that this Jesus guy who came and lived and loved people really well and taught some pretty crazy things uh, and then died at the hands of the Roman Empire, that he then rose again from the grave through the power of God himself, the one true holy God who sits above all these other gods that they've worshipped their entire lives. And when you come to faith in that and it radically changes your whole paradigm of how you've seen things and how you've been brought up, where do you go but maybe the Jewish synagogue to learn about their God? And what they would find when they got there was that they were being oppressed by that power as well. They weren't welcome there because they were worshiping this Jesus. There's this tug of war going on. And in a small little community in Philadelphia, they didn't have a whole lot of power to hold on. So Jesus' words to them are words of comfort, words of encouragement. And I know we're in 2022 in Mesa, Arizona, and we have a much different context than Asia Minor, right? But do you think if Jesus has words for a small community who are trying to follow him faithfully, when there's all these other competing powers around you, trying to grab a hold of you and tug you into their way of life. Do you think if Jesus has words for a community like that, that that might be valuable for us today? I think so. And so this is what Jesus says. And remember, these are words straight from Jesus. A man named John wrote them down, but Jesus is giving these words. It's, it's addressed from him. And in each one of these little messages to seven different churches in seven different cities, Jesus introduces himself. And the way he introduces himself is very particular and specific to the community that he's addressing. And so he comes in and he gives this, this is who I am. And then he starts to tell them about something that he sees they're doing well. And then he moves on to confront them, though, in an area where they need to do better. And then he ends with a kind of call to action. Now, now, if you could do this, 
and there's a reward at the end of that. Now, there's a couple times that that pattern breaks slightly. For example, uh, the last letter to a church called Laodicea, which is, comes right after this one, there's nothing good he says about them. That's, I'm glad I'm not preaching that one, right? If you've been sitting through these letters in the book of Revelation for a few weeks now, I'm glad as a guest preacher, I get to come and do the one where there's nothing bad said about them, right? And there's two times that happens, the letter to Smyrna and the letter to Philadelphia. He actually has nothing bad to say about them. And what's interesting about that is those are the two smallest communities and the two least powerful communities, the two communities that are being the most oppressed. And Jesus has nothing to say against them. That doesn't mean they were perfect. It doesn't mean that they were getting everything right all the time. What it means is they needed to hear words of comfort and encouragement. And so Jesus addresses them this way uh, in verse 7. He says, this is what the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David says. The One who opens doors and no one will close. The One who closes and no one opens. Now, that's kind of a weird image, right? We're wondering, what in the world does that mean? What is this key of David? And Revelation is this book of all kinds of symbols, right? All kinds of imagery and all kinds of weird things and codes to crack, isn't it? No. I don't, I don't think so. Um, actually, most of the things that we don't understand, because remember, we're reading someone else's mail from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Most of these things we don't understand are because we aren't in their context and we don't speak their language and we aren't as familiar with their history. But people who are coming into this faith of Jesus would have started learning quickly a lot of the history of who God's people were. And particularly those who were Jewish who came to faith in Jesus in this context would have known. They would have heard these words from Jesus and it would have rung a little bell. It would have triggered something, a memory. And so if you can go back with me real quick to Isaiah chapter 22. We're going to hear something similar of what we just read there. But while you're turning there, while you're turning or swiping or whatever it is you got to do to get to Isaiah chapter 22, let me give you a little context for Philadelphia, okay? Not only was this small community of believers in Jesus powerless, but also the entire city itself had been a city of suffering. This was a city that had, during this time, this era of history, had actually suffered through two massive earthquakes, bad enough to where they had to actually evacuate the entire city. And then they would rebuild. This, they kind of got this grant from the king where they would go in and rebuild. But could you imagine that? Like losing your home, losing everything you own, being displaced from your home. And then you get to go back in after everything had been shaken up, quite literally, you get to go back in and start to rebuild, but now you're finding that your own family and friends, because you follow this guy named Jesus, that they want nothing to do with you, and in fact, they're against you. So in Isaiah chapter 22, in this moment, what's going on is this is a, a prophet. This is someone who God sends to his people, the Israelites. If you remember the history, the story here of the Bible, God's people, the Israelites, he called a specific nation so that they would be a people who would show the rest of the world what God's like. He blessed these people so they would be a blessing to others. 
He called them to be a kingdom of priests. That means not only were they to take this love of God, this favor from God, this knowledge of who God is for themselves, but they were actually to invite and call in the other nations to come enjoy them. And Israel was terrible at this. Much like we still are today, right? Awful at it. And so they failed miserably time and time again. And instead of showing other nations what their God, the true God, was like, instead, they would look to other nations' gods and go, oh, that looks pretty interesting. And they would start worshiping these other gods too. And so God would send people throughout the years to kind of remind them and wake them up a little bit and say, hey, remember who you are and remember who I am. And some of the people he did this through were called prophets. Isaiah was one of those. And Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah, typically what you get is a message for nations, a message for kingdoms, a message for entire communities to see who God is. But this one is unique, what we're about to read. He actually has a message for two specific people. A man named Shebna. Shebna was a guy who was in the royal court. Uh, there's a king, Hezekiah. He's a pretty good king, actually. But Shebna, he, he was likely, a lot of church historians think maybe like a treasurer or something like that. But he was kind of rising in the ranks. And he was a wicked man. He was prideful. He was selfish. And he was leading the Israelites astray. And then there's a, another guy who we'll hear about in a second. But these are the words God says through the prophet Isaiah to Shebna. He says this in verse 15. The Lord God of armies says, Go to Shebna, that steward who is in charge of the palace, and say to him, What are you doing here? Who authorized you to carve out a tomb for yourself here? Carving your tomb on the height and cutting a resting place for yourself out of rock. Look, you strong man. I love that. Like, there's some sarcasm there. God can be sarcastic at times. It's almost like a mocking tone. Look, you big strong man, right? The Lord is about to shake you violently. He will take hold of you, wind you up into a ball and sling you into a wide land. There you will die and there your glorious chariots will be, a disgrace to the house of your Lord. I will remove you from your office. You will be ousted from your position. That's some harsh, intense words for this guy, Shebna. Why? Because he is in a position of authority and power and he's wielding it for his own personal gain and it is causing oppression and damage for other people. And God's saying, I'm going to remove you from that position. And he's using language there that if, listen, it, what we're about to see is the words Jesus uses to introduce himself call people back to this passage. Remember, these were people who had been displaced because of the earthquakes in their own home. And did you hear that language there? I'm going to shake you violently. And I'm going to throw you out from this land. Right? This is like totally ringing a bell for the people in Philadelphia. This is hitting home for them because what's coming next is some pretty good news. He says this, we continue in verse 20. On that day, I will call for my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. You don't need to memorize those names, it's okay. I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. I will hand your authority over to him and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. That means he ain't going nowhere, right? 
Do you hear those words? Jesus says to Philadelphia that he's the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, who closes and no one opens. The imagery in Revelation, it can be weird sometimes, but when we do the work to understand who it is writing it and who they're writing it to, and we, and we get some more context of the whole story of the Bible, suddenly it starts to come a little more clear that what Jesus is saying to these people who have been displaced and oppressed and who are caught in the middle of different world powers, as he's saying, hey, those, those people who think they have authority and rule over you, I will remove them like that earthquake displaced you but I'm the one who has actually given the key to the kingdom. I'm the one who has all authority and power, the holy one, the true one. And when I open a door for you to come in, no one can close that door on you. When I close a door, no one can open that. Jesus says elsewhere, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by through him. He's using this language that was said of this guy a long time ago that God put in position of power in order to care for other people. Jesus is saying he is the true one. He's the true ruler with the key to the palace on his shoulder. That he's the one who is going to make a way for them to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Now this is good news for people who have been oppressed and displaced. And I don't think many of us in here, maybe some of us, have felt the same things that the church in Philadelphia has. But I do think that many of us in here have felt some of that before. Or maybe in, in completely different context, you've felt it to the same degree. I think there are people in this room who have felt that displacement and that oppression from people who are in power and position of authority over them who wield that for their own personal gain, not to care for people like God has called us to do. And this message is good news for you. This is good news. The holy one, the true one, the one who has true authority in God's throne, he makes a way for you to come in and no one can remove you. He says this too, toward the end of his letter to Philadelphia. He says that he will make them like pillars in the temple of God, verse 12. What does that mean? It means you ain't going nowhere. Like that Eliakim dude who was like a, a peg jammed into a hole, he says. You're not going, no one can remove you from the hands of God. No one can remove you from the kingdom of Jesus when he says, yes, you can come in. Now, I, I know that we're a small community, right? We're a small congregation. And so maybe just even as a whole, we, we need to hear that. Like, keep on, keep enduring. Keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Keep trusting in who he says he is. Keep following in his ways because he is the holy one, the true one. Endure, and he is making a place for us. And he is opening the door for us into the kingdom. But I also want to be cautious about reading ourselves into this position a little too much. Because right? we can read this and we can go, you know, if, if there's any, any of these seven churches that Jesus 
uh, thinks we are most closely aligned with, it's probably the one that has nothing said bad about them, right? We, we're Philadelphia all the way. Not go Eagles, but like we'll, we'll be aligned with this Philadelphia in the book here, right? But just as it's true that each of us have probably experienced some moments of displacement, oppression under the hands of someone with power over us, I think it's also true that many, if not all of us, have been in a position of power where we have had opportunities to wield that over another. And I think if all of us are honest with ourselves, that many of us could probably confess that we at times have used that not to care for those who didn't have power, but to put ourselves higher in a position of power. And what we need to hear in this letter is that Jesus says, whatever door he opens, don't you dare try to close it. You don't get to decide who's in or who's out. You don't get to decide that. Jesus alone is the one who holds that power. And he will make pillars out of those who trust and follow in him. And, and we can try to oftentimes look at certain people in certain ways of life and different backgrounds and understandings of things and go, man, there's no way they're in, right? There's no way. And Jesus alone is the one who opens the door that we can't close. I think we need to hear this on both ends. There's, there's this warning to us. And, and yes, this is a small community of believers, but let's also be real too. Like I've seen some amazing things happen here through Missio de Mesa to bless this city in good ways. And, and there's other times, other letters addressed where Jesus says things like, hey, you have this name for yourself. You have this reputation. And there's lots of cool things happening here with this group where there's businesses being started right here in downtown Mesa. And there could be this opportunity where there's, there's a name and a reputation being built here. Maybe not yet, maybe, maybe not uh, to the degree you think is impressive, right? But there's, this, there's something growing there. And what we've seen throughout history, what we've seen even in, in these small little communities here who were being oppressed by the Roman Empire, is what eventually happens throughout history is one of the Caesars decides Christianity is our new religion. It's the new cool thing. It's, it's a thing that we're going to start pushing for the nation. And this era of what's called Christendom comes in. And suddenly, Christianity rises in power. And what we've seen throughout history is people who align themselves with the way of Jesus, people who align themselves with what it means to be a Christian with the church, start using this position of power in order to oppress other people and decide who's in and who's out. Let this just be a word of caution to us. Lord willing, as, as we grow in believers, right, who are being added to our number daily, Lord willing, as we grow in our love for others and we serve and we care for the city around us, and who knows, maybe a, a reputation and a name starts to get built that if there's ever a position of power, a reputation given to this small community of believers, that we would use it to care for people. We would use it to look out for the oppressed. Because that's what God has called his humans to all along. 
from the very beginning in creation when he made the first two humans in his image so that they could be his representatives and partners in caring for his world. That they were to actually have dominion over the world to partner with him in ruling and reigning, having authority. I mean, that's incredible when we really think about that. That that is what he is still calling his humans to. To partner with him in ruling and reigning and having authority. And yet, it doesn't look anything like we think it looks like. Because the first moment that those two original humans had to reach out and grab that authority for themselves, everything started breaking. We are to partner with God in the way that he rules and reigns. How does he do that? How does Jesus, the king over all of creation, the one who reigns in the throne room of heaven, who holds the key to the city of David, who opens doors no one can shut and shuts doors no one can open, how does he use his authority? What does he do? He addresses a group of people, one, and says, hey, hold on, I'm with you. Hold on, I'm with you. And then he gets to this really weird uh, message here, which sounds very Revelation-like, right? Let's read this. He says this to them. In verse 10, because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. I almost skipped over this one because I was like, it's just easier not to touch it. You know, let's just stick on the good news and talk about partnering with God and ruling and reigning. Like, that's cool stuff right there. Uh, But this is like revelation stuff that we think of, right? When you think of revelation, and I just read that Jesus said that he's going to keep you from the hour of testing to come. What pops into your head? Go ahead and say it. School testing? (laughs) Challenge? Trials? When, when Jesus says, I'll keep you from that hour of trials, what does that make you think of? What was that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, yeah, I imagine watching the rest of the world deal with those trials, but, but we're not going to have to, yeah. And so a lot of our most recent Western church history has looked at it and said, oh, that means like God's got an evacuation plan for us. He's going to just take a big vacuum and suck us up out of the world and we don't have to deal with it, right? All the really bad stuff's going to happen after we're gone. And I don't think that's what he's saying here. What Jesus is doing with his power and his authority is he's coming and he's saying, I will keep you safe. I will protect you. Listen, there's been lots of hours of trials and testing and bad circumstances all over the whole earth, throughout the history of humanity. I don't think he's talking about some future event that hasn't happened yet that the church in Philadelphia he's writing to will never, ever see. They're going through that hour of testing right now. But he says this, he says, I will keep you. I don't mean, think that means he's going to pluck you out of it. Go with me to John 17. And this will be our last little verse we jump to. John 17, Jesus is praying. 
for those who follow him. He's praying for his disciples. But he says not just for the ones with him in the moment. He's praying for all of those who would come and follow him after. And so he's speaking to the Father, God, on behalf of us and behalf of his disciples with him. And he says this. He says, I will no longer be in the world, verse 11 of John 17. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting or keeping them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them. That word right there, it's the same Greek word Jesus uses in Revelation 3 that we just read. That word keep. It's the same exact word there, and it means to protect. It means to guard. It means to watch over. It means to hold safely. I don't think Jesus is saying, I will remove you when things get really hard. Like, don't worry, you're not going to have to face it. He's saying, I'm with you when it comes. That's how Jesus uses his power, to come and be with those who are in need. In fact, if you skip down to verse 15, I think this drives it home, it proves it. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus uses his power to come down and be with those who are powerless, to care for those who are in need. And he does that ultimately as he stepped down out of the throne room in heaven and walked along this dirty, broken world and lived perfectly loving others and sitting with those who no one else would sit with and healing people who were in need and eventually going to a torturous death on the cross on our behalf so that, so that he could open the door to new life that no one can shut. And if we trust in this Jesus, we get to follow him through that open door into the kingdom and dwell with God eternally. And we don't get to be the ones who decide who the door opens for or closes for. We simply get to follow Jesus through that door. And we get to call to other people and say, hey, come with us. My wife and I were talking about this text on the drive over here, and she was saying how the coffee shop that uh, she runs, that she's working there, oftentimes she's bringing stuff through the door, and she cracks the door open to where it, like, it stays, right? It gets kind of locked open. And when she's bringing stuff in, people will oftentimes go like, like they're going to hold the door for her, which is a nice gesture, but it's pointless because the door is staying open already, right? But they, they go and like put their hand on the door like they're going to hold it open for her, which is, yeah, that's nice, but you're not doing anything. And that's kind of our role. Like we don't open the door for anybody. Jesus opens the door, but we get to go, hey, look, right here, it's open. Come on in. Come on in. May we be that church right, who points people to the power of Jesus instead of using power over them. May we be that church who points people to the door Jesus is opening for them instead of closing it on their face. May we be that church, Missio de Mesa. May you be this church that the city of Mesa sees an open door to true life, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus alone, through your love and your sacrifice. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would help us to be the people you've called us to be, to partner with you in the type of authority that cares for others and protects and keeps.
type of authority that would lay down one's life for another. God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross on our behalf. Give us the strength to endure when we face the hour of trials. That we may be faithful and that we may be a light to others that they would see a way into the door that Jesus opens for them. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Each week that we gather together, we get to practice in this uh, rhythm that the church has done throughout centuries. One that Jesus himself instituted and, and called us to do every time we get together. That we go to the table because Jesus invited people who weren't normally invited to tables to his table. And what he did on, on the last meal, sitting at the table for the last time before going to his death, is he broke bread and he said, when you get together, you do this and you remember my body broken for you. And he dipped it in the cup and he said, when you do this, remember my blood spilled for you. And every time we do this together as a community, we are professing the mystery of our faith this amazing fact that Jesus not only died, but he rose again and he's coming back. But we also, we also are professing to the world around us that there is now a way in. And so we go to the table to remember what Jesus endured on our behalf, giving up his power for us. Up here at the table, there is a, a plate here for juice, if you need that. And then there's one with wine on the side there, bread in the middle. Come and grab a cup, grab a piece of bread, Take it back to your seat, and we invite you, if you are in Jesus, if you make this proclamation, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again, to go ahead and take that on your own as you feel ready.